Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on a cool but sunny late autumn day here in a rather quiet tier three capital is Nick Hampton. Nick is the CEO of Tate and Lyle PLC, a B2B food and drink ingredient supplier specialising in solutions that lower sugar, fat and calories, increasing fibre and adding texture. As CEO, a position which he has held since 2018, Nick is responsible for leading the business's global workforce of around 4,200 people. Nick, hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning, Nick, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Um, normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there. Um, over the course of what has been quite a chaotic year for all of us, and I think we are all very relieved that it is almost over, just how has all of this affected you and your business? Well, let me let me start by saying because we're an essential business in every country where we operate and we play a key role in supporting the food supply chain, we stayed operational right the way throughout COVID. Um, And in many ways, we've been fortunate because of the the role that we play. Um, And as we we came into this, we were very clear that we needed to run our business to help get the world through COVID-19 and very consistent with our purpose of improving lives for generations. Um, and that allowed us actually to set four very clear priorities at the start of the year. I mean, firstly, and most importantly, to keep our colleagues safe and to support our local communities through this. Secondly, to serve our customers well, so they could keep the food supply chain running. Um, thirdly, to maintain our financial strength, um, so we could emerge stronger. And lastly, also to keep one eye on the future, you know, not just manage through the pandemic, but make sure we come out of this a stronger company that is fit for the future. And, you know, pleased to say that we've managed those four priorities pretty well. It hasn't been easy, but we have managed to keep our business running. Um, we've managed to serve our customers well through this. And as a result, we've supported uh, our local communities, kept the food supply chain running, and most importantly, kept our people safe. And thinking about keeping people safe and that first priority of staff well-being that you were mentioned there, what this whole pandemic certainly has done is amplified the importance of mental health within leadership, hasn't it? So what sort of steps have you taken to sort of keep on top of that and make sure that everybody is connected? I mean, you're absolutely right. And in many ways, mental health has become the bigger issue for businesses than the physical well-being of their employees. So we have spent a lot of time using technology to keep people connected. So right at the outset of the pandemic, we moved over 4,000 people onto Microsoft Teams. And we really put an emphasis on staying connected with people to support them in their daily life. Um, Working remotely can be very challenging for people, especially for employees with young families who are trying to balance childcare with homeschooling, with work. And it was very important to us that we focused on maintaining connection with our employees in a way that was 
very different to the past when you were going to work. I'll give you a very personal example. Mm. Um, over the last nine months, I've talked to every member of the Tate and Lyle family in what I call virtual cafe. So from Brisbane to Chicago, from Singapore to Sao Paulo, actually without leaving my study. So I've had a two-way conversation as the CEO about the state of the business, the challenges at the front line, uh, you know, very personal, very direct conversations um, that has hopefully created clarity, reassurance. And for me, it's given me a very direct insight into what's really going on in the business. Um, you know, no corporate crafted communications, a mm. two-way conversation, and a very efficient way of staying in contact with people and reassuring them about the strength of the business and the way we're navigating through this. And can you see some features of this lockdown period, such as that move toward remote communication becoming a permanent part of the way that we do business across the world now? Well, I think there is no doubt that we've learned so much about the power of technology to allow more flexible, contemporary, efficient ways of working. I can see us traveling less, using technology more. I can see us being much more flexible about where people work. I think the days of going into the office five days a week are past us. And that's a good thing because it allows people to balance off their work life with their personal life in a very different way and be more efficient at what they do. I mean, clearly we want to get back into the office for certain things, you know, creativity, working together on problems. The social connection that you get from being in the office is very important. But mm. I think we've learned that we can be much more flexible and efficient if we utilize technology in the right way. And that's one of the big positives to me that's come out of the whole of the COVID-19 experience. I think you're very right. There are some real positives and learnings that we can take from having to adapt to this very new reality. And just moving away from COVID uh, just for a second, sort of day-to-day pre-pandemic, how would you have described your own sort of personal leadership style, if you will, and how do you feel that that's changed in recent months? That's a a great question. I mean, I'm a real believer that leadership is all about providing vision, purpose, and clarity of direction. Um, You know, the power of purpose in terms of motivating people, um, inspiring to be of their best, I think is what will make successful companies stay successful into the future. And I've always held that as a belief. That's been more emphasized than ever for me through COVID-19. Our purpose has been our real North Star, and it's inspired our organization to really go the extra mile to help manage through it. So I think we'll do even more work on that going forward. Um, you know, I'm a great believer that you should put people first, um, show them that you care, build trust and inspire them to be of their best. And that's been really emphasized for me through the COVID experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, Early on in the crisis, I made the point of calling every single one of our plant managers um, just to make sure that they were safe, that people were safe, they have what they needed, they have what they needed. And one or two of my, my plant managers at the time said to me, that made a huge difference for them, having that personal connection. So I'm, I'm going to do much more of that going forward, I think, than maybe I would have done in the past. When you tend, Sometimes you tend to get too focused on the strategy and the future of the business. Mm. Business is all about people. 
It is certainly. And um, I suppose that heading up a global business can be mentally taxing even when things are going well, never mind during a global pandemic as we're going through now. So just thinking about the mental health and self-care thing uh, just for a little moment longer. Um, In your case, how easy do you find it to sort of switch off and take time out as and when you need to? I think it's difficult. Um, I mean, these jobs are 24-7, but it's also a privilege. And, you know, the the thing for me that has always taken me away from work is exercise and sport. Mm. Um, So I've been very disciplined uh, through the crisis of getting out to run every day. It's my way of uh, relaxing, ordering my thoughts, staying, staying healthy. And in some ways, because I haven't been traveling, I've had more time to do that. So I, I just think you have to be disciplined about finding something else uh, to counterbalance. For me, it is, it is physical exercise, and that has the benefit of keeping me kind of fit and healthy as well. And I understand as well, of course, Tate and Lyle isn't the only global operator, if you will, that you have uh, worked for. Of course, I believe you spent nine years with PepsiCo before that in a number of key roles there. Um, Looking back over that time in your career and maybe even earlier on, is there anybody that perhaps you would say you encountered or any experiences that you've had that have maybe helped mould you into that leader that you are today? Look, I had the the benefit in my actually 20 years at Pepsi and working with many extraordinary people. Um, and, the, and the thing that uh, um, somebody who I value massively said to me very early on in my career is, um, whatever you do, make sure you build strong, diverse teams around you. Surround yourself with the best talents. Inspire, mobilize, and coach them. And they will deliver extraordinary results for you. Um, and that's, that's struck, that, that stuck with me right the way through my, my career. Um, we couldn't have got through the last 12 m- months without the extraordinary leadership team I have supporting me. Mm. Um, you know, they're the real heroes here. Uh, so, you know, one of my big maxims on leadership is about building strong and diverse teams. And diversity is important because you want diversity of thought and experience. You want people to challenge. You don't want to build a team in your own image. Um, uh, you know, the more diverse, uh, and inclusive perspectives that you can bring to the table, the stronger your team's going to be. There's a great quote out there, isn't there, um, that when you're building a team, you should surround yourself with people who fundamentally are better than you are. And that is one of the biggest pieces of advice I think you can give to somebody who is maybe looking to start out in business and sort of build a team of their own as well. That is absolutely spot on. You know, hire people who are better than yourself um, and you'll always be fine. And of course, you've received some uh, fantastic pieces of advice yourself over your career that have really helped build you up to this point. But if you had to give some advice of your own based on your experience, Nick, just to those young people out there that may well be feeling a little bit disheartened by the economic situation and what it's doing to their employment prospects, what would you really have to say to them to sort of get them to pick their heads up, look at the opportunities and embark on that road to success at this time? Look, I'm a a great believer in... Um, curiosity, um, and I and I do think um, demonstrating both the humility and the curiosity to continue to learn will always make you um, a stronger leader and more able to do a, a great job. Um, we talk a lot about experience in business, and of course, experience has a role to play. But you can turn it on its head and say, 
you know, when you wake up in the morning, rather than thinking about everything that you know, think about all the things you don't know. Um, so that, you know, the biggest advice I give to anybody entering a career or developing their career is have the humility to never stop listening and learning. I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. And I am conscious, of course, that our time on the programme together, unfortunately, Nick, is beginning to draw to its close. But just before we do uh, wrap things up to today, um, I'd be interested to understand what you feel is next for Tate and Lyle as we go into 2021 and where you see yourselves being this time next year. Now that we do have some real hope with the vaccine that there is a way out of this pandemic situation we're currently in at last. So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the future. Um, I think we have to recognize there are still challenges ahead to get beyond COVID-19. And increasingly, those challenges are going to be more about the social challenges that are left because of the economic challenges that we're going to face. Um, but I think I'm optimistic about the future because there is a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And humankind has the capacity to be incredibly innovative in the face of challenges. Um, what does that mean for us? I think what the current situation has highlighted is some of the health challenges surrounding diets across the world. I do believe we'll see a greater focus on healthy living as a result of our experience in the last 12 months. And we have a role to play in that as a company. You know, we uh, have a capability to help our customers do what I call make healthy food tastier and tasty food healthier. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on for the next 12 months. Um, we'll continue to look after our people and, that, and our communities. Uh, we'll continue to support our customers in growing their businesses. Um, and if we do those two things, I think uh, Tate and Lyle will continue to thrive and we'll play a positive role in, in helping the world recover from the challenges of this pandemic. Absolutely agree. It's all about keeping those uh, four priorities that you mentioned earlier very much at the forefront and making sure that you're playing a key role very much on the front line of taking things forward. Um, Nick, I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the program today. And once more, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the program. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. And uh, coming up next on the show today, we're going to be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 and has served as an active member of Parliament's upper chamber ever since. During a distinguished political career, he held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet during Tony Blair's Premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 20 28 years and he managed all of that despite being blind from birth i do hope that all of you enjoy listening just as much as matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him and that is of course coming up next lord blunkett welcome thank you very much it's very good to be with you um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. 
in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm-hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a credible opposition nor an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.